be reading this morning from Matthew 17, beginning in verse 1. Matthew 17, 1. And six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were much afraid. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did, not, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. I'll pray. Heavenly Father, um, we certainly do um, want your name to be lifted up and exalted, that you are the majestic one, our glorious God. And as we look at your word together, just speak to our hearts, God, that we would see you in your majesty and in your glory, and that the things of this world, Lord, would be put in their proper place. And we are grateful, God, for your willingness to speak to our hearts by your spirit, through your word. And we do ask that your good work would be done in us. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, I, um, my wife has reminded me that there's been a lot of graduates um, this spring. And so I won't name all of you, but congratulations to you. Ignoring the His Hill students, as they, we already know they graduated. Um, but there have been several high school graduates, a couple of college graduates, and congratulations to you all for that milestone. The light that you've been looking for at the end of the tunnel finally arrived, and we're grateful for the achievement that you've had. It's Memorial Day weekend where we remember those who gave their lives for us, for our freedoms, and for this country, and we're um, also just very grateful for that sacrifice that's been made. In so many instances, it was truly a case of, of um, good versus evil, light versus darkness, and, um, and good men and women who um, lay down their lives um, in order to stand up against the evil. And we could never be too great, grateful for those that have done that. It's a sad um, week, though, as we all know, with what happened down in Uvalde and all those children and those teachers that lost their lives, where we saw evil on display again. And I know it's been on all of our hearts. Um, it's gut-wrenching to think about what happened and what those families are going through now. Um, this will be their first Sunday back in church after that. And um, it's been my prayer that they would be in church and that their hearts would be drawn to Jesus and not hardened to him. Um, his evil is a very real thing. And it is a 
big thing. And in God's providence, I believe, he has us here in John 7, Matthew 17, where this chapter starts out not with evil, but with the greatness of our God, the greatness of Jesus Christ. And the next passage following this, what I did not just read, is about evil. And I think that, that under the inspiration of the Spirit that Matthew put these passages back to, get, back, to back for a reason. It's also this way in Mark and in Luke. Um, and so it's meant to be to grab our attention and to teach us here. And so it's a very significant passage. The previous verse um, of before chapter 17 began, this really an unfortunate chapter break, but at the end of chapter 16, verse 28, it says, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. That verse or statement similar to it is, precedes the transfiguration in all three synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so there's a clear connection here. As soon as Jesus says this, a few days later, He takes three of the disciples only, Peter, James, and John, up onto the mount of what we call transfiguration, and He was transfigured or transformed in front of them. And that seems to be the fulfillment of what He said, that there are some standing here who will not die until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom or coming in His glory. And so they don't see the kingdom coming, but they see the Son of Man in His glory and the way that He will look when He comes again to the earth. We look forward to that day and pray that it'll be soon. So into the passage here, six days after Jesus said that, um, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. This is now the second of three times that these men, these three men are isolated among the 12. They were isolated when the healing of Jairus' daughter, Jesus said to um, these three men come in the room with me, and they were with Jesus when Jesus rose the, the girl, the 12-year-old girl, up from the dead. And they will be with Jesus at the, at, on, um, when He is praying before His crucifixion. It's those three that will go alone with Him and pray with Him um, in that final hour before He's arrested. And then this occasion as well. I don't know how the other disciples would have dealt with that. I think it would have been a little bit difficult perhaps, we know that Jesus loved them all, and He loved them well, but there were these occasions, and I would assume that there were others besides the three that are recorded for us, where Jesus isolated these three, and, and they had um, a, a privileged opportunity and, um, and time with Him that the others didn't have. And in the case of Peter, um, his brother Andrew was left behind. That must have been difficult. James and John got to go as brothers, but Peter... Um, was alone, separate from his brother. And the other guys not only just had to deal with that and wonder what was going on up there, and they weren't allowed to even tell what happened up there until much later, um, and they were to be silent about it, but while they're up there doing whatever, nobody knows what's going on until later, these other men, these other nine men, are having to deal with a father who brings his demon-possessed son and says, help me. And they couldn't. And so they were dealing with that tragedy, tragedy of evil that they were powerless to do anything about while Jesus was up on a mountain doing what they didn't know what with those three disciples. 
Verse 2 says that after they got up there on the mountain, and again, the other accounts, it's great to put the three together. It gives us each, each of them add a little bit more information. I believe it's Luke that says that after they got there up on the mountain, that the three disciples went to sleep. And it wasn't until they woke up that they saw what's recorded here in Matthew. He was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. Now, if you were here for the adult Sunday school class, Jim, our resident physicist, just spent a whole hour talking about uh, God being light, and he clothes himself with light. And I thought, wow, this is amazing, you know, that Jim's talking about that, and here this passage. So Jim could be up here, and he could easily spend probably the next month talking about what this passage <laughs> means here. But it was, was amazing to these men, beyond amazing. They, they, they're struggling for words, and and the, the significance of what they saw would have very much paralleled what's recorded in um, Hebrews chapter 1 and Ezekiel chapter 1, where they're seeing something that just baffles their minds. And they, they had come to a pretty good understanding of who Jesus is. Remember in one of the previous chapters, they worshiped him as God, and yet they're now seeing him in his glory. Amazing. I believe this is why passages like this, is, it helped to understand um, John chapter 1 where it says, no man has ever seen God at any time, the only begotten God. Um, he has explained him. And so I think that John chapter 1 is saying no one has ever seen God the Father at any time, but God the Son is the one who has revealed him. This also helps us to understand the first few verses of John where John um, describes Jesus as being the light which came into the world, and the light is the life of men. Amen. And we're seeing here that he's being revealed in his glory and the light. In him was life, and the light was the life, uh, was the light of men. And in John chapter 8, Jesus proclaims himself as the light of the world. And he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. And in chapter 9, I am the light of the world. And these men are seeing that literally before them. He was transfigured before them as his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. Now you think that would have been enough to have terrified them that they're seeing Jesus shine like God, because he is. And yet it wasn't until the voice came from heaven that they became truly terrified, and they fell on their faces and shook in fear. Not only did they see Jesus transfigured before them, but they saw Moses and Elijah talking with him. We don't know how they knew it was Moses and Elijah. I have to just suppose the Spirit of God communicated that to them somehow. That's Moses, that's Elijah. I don't think they had name tags on. And we're not told what they were talking about. This is about six months prior to Christ's crucifixion, so maybe they were talking about that and what's about to come up. We don't know. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here, always talking when he ought to be silent. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Let's just stay here, camp out for a while. Let's not rush this. Let's stay on the mountaintop. 
And before Jesus could even answer him, God the Father took over. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Quit talking, Peter, and listen. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were much afraid. I'm not trying to be hard on Peter and these disciples, but I, just to me, I'm thinking, why weren't they falling on their faces when they saw Jesus in his glory? And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. And they saw no one except Jesus alone. Now, I want to um, just spend some time, I'm just going to pause here for a bit before we move on to the next section. And I've just been thinking a lot this week, particularly in light of the evil that happened in Uvalde and really that's happening all over the world every day. Thinking a lot about Jesus in his glory and what is being communicated here in this passage about Christ. With camp starting soon for us at His Hill, all the summer staff and part of their training is they're learning all the camp songs and all the motions that go with them. I won't pretend that I can do those motions. Um, but one that they sing is, um, um, I wrote it down, My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. Y'all sing that song, right? So my God is so big, right? So strong and so mighty. Is that there? My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. And they clap and they keep going. Okay. It's a wonderful <laughs> song. All the kids that have been to camp know that song too. He is so big, so strong, so mighty. There is nothing my God cannot do. So hard when you live in the valleys among evil and the demon-possessed. Personally, I have to believe for somebody to perform the evil that that young man performed, he had to have been demon-possessed. It is hard to believe that our God is so big, so mighty, so strong, and there's nothing that he cannot do. This Mount of Transfiguration was not for Jesus. It was for these three men that they could see Jesus in his glory. Because if anybody was going to know the power of evil in their lives, it was going to be these disciples. And they were going to need to remember Jesus and his glory. So I've, I just sat down and I just started writing different lessons to learn from this. And, and I divided it into three parts. Lessons regarding his person, lessons regarding the transfiguration itself, and lessons to us. Regarding his person, Jesus, 
He is greater than we think. Whatever you think, whatever we think he is in magnitude, in majesty, it doesn't begin to compare. He is infinitely greater than we think. He is certainly greater than Moses and Elijah. This is why God says to him, Moses and Elijah are significant. Most um, commentaries would say that they probably um, symbolize the entire Old Testament, the law and the prophets. And God is saying, God the Father, listen to my son. He's greater even than the word of God because he is the living word of God. He is God. He is now in his place of glory. John 17, Jesus prayed and he says, Father, restore me to my glory. And he is in that exalted place of glory now. He is light. There is no darkness in him. Perfect light, holy, without sin, good. His kingdom is indeed coming. We can wonder, especially as there's evil that seems to be advancing in the world and it just seems to be getting greater and greater. Is it really coming? Is his kingdom really coming? And the transfiguration would have told these men, there's no question. You've seen the king in his glory. There is nothing that can keep him from coming. Once you've seen the king in his glory, you will never question whether he is coming again. Nothing could keep him from coming. Peter makes reference to this when he wrote his epistle, 2 Peter. Just flip over to that with me, if you would, to 2 Peter chapter 1. And we can see that Peter never forgot about this, marked him for the rest of his life. And he begins his recounting of the Mount of Transfiguration in, in chapter 1, verse 16, by saying, We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because how many people that didn't see the Mount of Transfiguration didn't see what, Jesus, what Peter and James and John saw and would listen to the words of Peter and the persecution would come because much of First and Second Peter is about persecution and they're going, Peter, we're not so sure. And Peter goes, I'm absolutely sure. I saw him in his glory. These are not cleverly devised tales. If there was anything Peter was not, it was a spinner of cleverly devised tales. We made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And when we received, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. God the Father is the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word made more sure, 
to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. I love that passage of Scripture, especially when you link it with what we're reading here in Matthew 17. Not cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We were witnesses of His majesty when the majestic glory said from on high, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He is a big God, and He is coming again. Some lessons regarding His transfiguration. It wasn't for Him. <laughs> he was not having any doubts about His glory, about His person. He knew who He was. This was not for Him, it's for them. It didn't change the essence of who he was. Think about that. Jesus is the light of the world. He is God, therefore he is light. And so for the 33 years he walked around on earth, his body, as it were, was veiling the light of his presence. And in this brief time that he was on his mountain, God allowed the light to be seen. Jesus didn't flip on the switch. I am almost tempted to think Jesus was unaware of what happened. I can't prove that. But it wasn't for Him. It was for them. And Jesus says, this vision is for you. Don't talk about it, though, until after I've raised from the dead. That's when people are going to really need to know my glory. The essence of Christ, I want to just hammer on this for a minute because you'll see the application. The essence of who Jesus was didn't change. It was the outward expression of who he was that changed, not the inner essence. Nothing changed about who Jesus was. It was what was seen that was changed. And the third lesson about his transfiguration, he didn't do it. The verb tense here is in the passive. It happened to him. He didn't cause it. Every time this word for transfiguration is used in the New Testament, and it's not many, it's only four, Matthew uses it, Mark uses it, Paul uses it in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and in Romans 12.2. So Matthew, Mark, and then Paul twice. Of those four occasions... Every time it's passive, it's never active. That's going to be significant now as we talk about lessons to us, the disciples. Lesson number one, God chooses the mountaintop experiences. He chooses when, He chooses where, He chooses who, He chooses how long, and how frequently. Aren't they nice when you get them? Wow, that was being in church today was a mountaintop experience. Working at camp this summer was a mountaintop experience. And then it's over. And you go home. Sometimes it's just <laughs> the ride home after church. Boy, are we back in the demon-possessed valleys. <laughs> that mountaintop experience didn't last long enough. 
and we begin to want to get the fix again, right? We're going to have over 900 kids, Lord willing, come through camp this summer in His Hill. A lot of them have been there before, and a lot of them are coming back because they want the mountaintop back. God determines the mountaintop experiences. We don't. God does. Who, when, where, how long it's going to last, and how many they're going to be. They are not for everyone mountaintop experiences. He determines this. Some people are given more privilege and more opportunity, more mountaintop experiences than others are. They also get greater responsibility. They're held more accountable. The one that much has been given, much is required. Don't resent it when other people seem to get up on the mountaintop and you're not. It's God's business. Don't resent it. Don't get jealous. Don't become envious. I don't know why, but God determines this. And God knows when we need to be on the mountaintop. And it would seem, just going by this one instance, this one case in point, that a lot of time it could be that most people are not on the mountaintop. And we wish we could be. Don't resent it. Mountaintop experiences are meant to be temporary. They are meant to reveal Jesus in His majesty more fully. It's not about us. It's about seeing Jesus in His glory, seeing Jesus in His majesty more fully. They should not be forgotten, but they should be spoken of rarely and not glibly. These mountaintop experiences are times of great intimacy with God. Intimate matters should not be spoken of frequently, carelessly. There are times, rare times, when intimate matters could be spoken to. But most of the time, they should be kept private. The greater the experience with God, maybe the more silent we should become. You don't see people speaking much in the presence of God. They get silent because they know they're in God's presence. And it's beyond words. And it's meant to be that way. Mountaintop experiences, if we've truly been in the presence of God, truly seeing Christ in His glory, should humble us. They are meant to be rare and exceptional, not normal. We don't stay up there and build tabernacles. We abide in Christ, not experiences. Not experiences. Every year when we finish up a Bible school year, it's emotional time for me. It's actually kind of a depressing time. I, I never look forward to it. I'll never forget riding home. I've said this before. After, closing, after the closing banquet, we finished up a year, and we're making the mile trek in our car back to our house, and everybody in the car is quiet, and one of the kids said, this is the worst part. This is the worst part. And living at his hill 
and coming to the end of the year and seeing these that we love so much go home and realizing most of them we'll never see again. It's harder for them than it is for us. And I have to remind them as I have to be reminded myself. We always, everywhere, anywhere, anytime, can abide in Christ. But mountaintop experiences are rare. Abiding in Christ should be our daily experience. But the emotions, the hype, the, the, even the times of being where we feel like we could almost touch Jesus are meant to be rare. And that's not what we live. Don't forget them, but don't lust for them. We should desire Christ himself above all else. And he is readily available. We must come down from the mountaintop to the demon-filled valleys. We are made for living in the valleys among people with impossible needs that only Jesus can meet. We are made for the places where we would rather not be, the places which cause us to face our fears, our inadequacies, our inabilities, and our frustrations. It is in those places that we depend on Jesus. His majesty is seen both in light and glory, and his majesty is seen in his power over demons and darkness. He doesn't want us to only know him in those private times of light and glory. He also wants us to know his power in a world full of darkness and demons. Our glorious, majestic Savior is not on a distant mountain. He is not in heaven. He is in those who have placed their faith in him. He indwells us. He is among us. And through us, he, he impacts this world. I have a friend of mine that when he... When all that was happening in Uvalde, um, he was driving to San Antonio from that side of San Antonio, the southwest side, and just the other side of the freeway was just one police car, ambulance, SWAT team after another. He hadn't heard what was going on. And he was in San Antonio for a doctor's appointment. He heard about what happened and went home and drove out to Uvalde. And he spent a couple days out there. Just praying with people, not necessarily with the parents, but just with the folks that were there um, in that gathering place, that auditorium. Praying with the police officers. One officer he prayed with was standing at the door where they were taking the parents into the room as they were able to determine um, which child had been killed. And they were bringing parents into the room and sitting them down. And two men in the room were telling these parents one at a time that their child had been killed. And you could hear the wailing out in the auditorium. And two officers were standing at the door to keep the media from going in. The media were all up in the, in the bleachers with microphones trying to get interviews from people while all this is going on. 
And the sheriff ordered them out of the bleachers. Difficult time. My friend walked up to one of the officers who was standing at that door and saw that he was having a hard time keeping it together. He just said, can I pray for you? He said, please do. I've got to keep it together. He said, well, you want to talk? He said, I can't talk. I'll lose it if I do. I've got to keep it together for right now. But the presence of people like that in times of darkness. Can you imagine what this world's going to be like when the church is taken out? God has us here now. And in God's wisdom and love for this world, as much as we hate the darkness that we're living in, God says this world needs you. It needs the light of Christ in a dark place. No one can comfort except the God of all comfort, and he is in us. We don't feel adequate. We are not to comfort people in the face of evil. But the God of all comfort is adequate, and he lives in us. The darker it gets, the more the light is needed. We stand against the darkness by walking in the light, first and foremost. What is the prescription for evil? We in this room know it is not more legislation. You cannot legislate evil. You cannot control evil by laws. The only antidote to evil is light. The light dispels the darkness. This world needs more light, not more laws. We are the light, the light of the world, because the one who is the light lives in us. When we walk in the light, 1 John 1 says, we have fellowship with him who is light. And we know him, and we are cleansed from all of our sin, and we have fellowship with one another, and our lives reflect him who is light. One of those two places where Paul mentions this word again, this word for transfigure, is in Romans 12, 2, where it's transformed. And he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. I don't know that you know. I didn't realize this for a long time, but again, it is the exact same word as what Jesus is is happening to his body. It's not two different Greek words. I have no idea why with 2 Corinthians 3.18 and Romans 12.2, all the translations basically have translated a different word. It is not a different word. It is the same exact Greek word. Transfigure and transformed are the same thing. Well, that helps me to understand Romans 12.2. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transfigured like Jesus was. What happened with Jesus? His essence didn't change. 
and it wasn't for him, and it wasn't accomplished by him. But what was true in him, his essence was simply being revealed for others to see. That's what Paul says ought to be happening in each of us and will happen as we present ourselves to him as a living sacrifice. He, in turn, as we place our faith in Christ and we present ourselves to Christ, the work that God has already performed positionally in each one of us, what is that? Death, burial, and resurrection with Christ, partakers of His divine nature, made new creatures in Christ, indwelt by Christ who is the glory of God. All of that is positionally true. And when I present myself to Him, what is positionally true, what is, the, what is essentially true, I think is a better word, because it is the essence of who I am now, a new creature, one who has been a, made a partaker of the very divine nature of God, one who is indwelt by God, that is my essence now. As I present myself to Him, what is essentially true becomes experientially true. It becomes revealed through me, manifest through me just as it was on the Mount of Transfiguration. And I may be totally unaware of it, as I wonder if Jesus was unaware of it there on the Mount of Transfiguration, because it isn't for me. It isn't for you. It's for those that we live among, that they would look at our lives, and maybe they don't know what, the, what they're seeing, but they go, I'm seeing something I've never seen before. instead of a politician who stands and tries to make political gain out of something like this. That Christians come in humility and say, how can I pray? How can I help? And they see light and life and hope because we're walking in the light with him who is the light. And we present ourselves to him what is true of who we have become in Christ is in turn reflected, revealed, manifest through us. Our transformation is then patterned after His transfiguration. Our essence is not changed, it is revealed. It isn't something for us, it is for others. And it is not accomplished by us. It is accomplished by God. Immediately after this glorious event, they get down into the valley, not to speak a word of what they've seen, and they encounter a father who is so distraught over a son that he cannot help. Matthew's Description is interesting, but it's not as graphic as Mark's. Matthew says, and when he came to the multitude, of, this verse 14, a man came up to him, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son. He is a lunatic. He is very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And when I brought him to your disciples, they could not cure him. Luke just, I mean, Mark comes out and just says, it's a demon. Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. 
And whenever it seizes him, it dashes him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. And I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. Peter, James, and John were on the ground shaking in fear at the presence of God and the voice of God. I wonder the fear that was in the hearts of the other nine as they saw a demon-possessed boy foaming at the mouth, throwing himself to the ground, trying to hurt himself. That would be fearful. Why would God have the writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, put both of these accounts right next to each other? I believe we're meant to see that the power of God does not begin to compare with the power of evil. And Jesus just walks up and with no effort whatsoever, cast this demon out. We can fear the darkness and evil of this world, and there is much to rob us of our peace in this world. People are talking now, there's a very real possibility that there'll be food shortages here in the United States where we have never known food shortages. There are so many things to fear. But when Jesus is big, when we see Jesus in his majesty, in his power, there is no reason for fear to grip us. Jesus answered and said, O believing and perverted generation, how long will I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and he was boy was cured at once. Amazing. I appreciated these words from Oswald Chambers from my utmost for his highest. He says, we have all had times on the mount when we have seen things from God's standpoint and have wanted to stay there. But God will never allow us to stay there. The test of our spiritual life is in the power to descend. If we have power to rise only, to go up on the mountain, something is wrong. It is a great thing to be on the mount with God, but if but a man only gets there in order that afterwards he may get down among the devil possessed and lift them up. We are not built for the mountains and the dawns and the ascetic affinities. Those are for moments of inspiration, that is all. We are built for the valley, for the ordinary stuff we are in, and that is where we have to prove our mettle. Spiritual selfishness always wants repeated moments on the mount. We feel we could, we could talk like angels, live like angels, if only we could stay on the mount. The times of exaltation are exceptional. They have their meaning in our life with God, but we must beware lest our spiritual selfishness wants to make them the only time. We are apt to think that everything that happens is to be turned into useful teaching. It is to be turned into something better than teaching. It is to be turned into character. The mount is not meant to teach us anything. It is meant to make us something. That is the, there is a great snare in asking, what is the use of it? In spiritual matters, we can never calculate on that line. The moments on the mountaintops are rare moments. 
They are meant for something in God's purposes. I believe to make us worshipers of God. To make us see us in His majesty. To humble us. And to believe in Him in the face of darkness and demons. That when everyone else is panicking around us and losing their faith because all they can see is the power of evil. Because we've seen God in His glory. We don't panic. We live at peace. And we have hope. And we have comfort. And by God's grace, we're able to comfort others. Because we know our God. And He is a big God. Mighty and strong. And there is nothing our God cannot do. Amen. I'll close us in prayer. Lord Jesus, we do again just lift these families up in Uvalde that have just been crushed, God. Evil was on display. Minister to them, Lord Jesus. Comfort them. Draw their hearts after yourself. We pray that the enemy would not have any more victory here than what he's already had. And now we ask, God, that you would so work through those people who know you in that community that they would step forward and come to those dear people Pray for them, love them, seek to encourage them, trusting you, God, for the wisdom and the ability for what they cannot do in their own strength. And we pray, God, that we would be the same. As we see people around us, God, that are just devastated by life and all the darkness and evil that's in it, that you would minister grace, comfort, and peace through us. And that hearts would be drawn to Jesus as they see the light in us. I pray that we walk with you, God, in the light. And that we would understand that when we walk in darkness, we have nothing to offer this world. Keep us in the light, oh God. And keep us, God, as we live in this world with hearts for you, ministering to those around us by the grace that you supply. In Jesus' name, amen.